The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Archaeology is often viewed as a fascinating, eclectic, yet ultimately quaint pursuit. This program explores archaeology from the perspective of professionals who demonstrate that in the 21st century, archaeology and its sub-disciplines may hold the key, not only to our past, but to our present and future. Welcome to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology, with your host, Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Spend the next hour exploring where we came from and where we're headed with a leading researcher and practitioner in the field. Now, here is Dr. Schuldenrein. This is Joe Schuldenrein with another episode of Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology. We have discussed ancient uh, civilizations, origins of civilizations, Mesopotamia, uh, Greece and Rome, and of course Egypt in a variety of different contexts and a variety of different uh, points of emphases. I think one of the very interesting developments in archaeology and uh, in in a variety of different associated fields, especially in texts and documentation, is a, a huge advance in our understanding of ancient languages and of ancient writing. Uh, today's program is, is uh, associated with uh, papyrology, if I'm pronouncing it correctly, with uh, my guest, Dr. John Bauschatz, who is um, at uh, the Department of Classics at the University of Arizona. Uh, Dr. Boschatz is, uh, got his Ph.D. at Duke University and at Brown University, and his research interests are Greek and Roman social history, Greek papyrology, and, in, and antiquity, Hellenistic, and Roman Egypt, and he has written a very fascinating new book called um, Law and Enforcement in Ptolemaic Egypt. And I think one of the points I want to emphasize here at the outset is that this is really a very, very intriguing and novel approach to uh, what we really don't know about Egypt and what's classically not associated with Egyptology. And uh, I'd like to introduce my guest and have him explain a little bit about uh, the police the police and the running of, uh, I don't know, civil defense and, and, and civil protection societies in uh, the very complicated state of Egypt. Uh, John Bauschatz, welcome to the program. Hey, thank you so much for having me. I'm happy to be here. So tell me what got you interested in law enforcement in Ptolemaic Egypt, which is a topic that I don't think anybody really, uh, whether or not they're professionals or lay people, really has ever considered very much. I mean, we're so concerned with hieroglyphics and deciphering language in the pyramids, and all of a sudden we have enough information to talk about the police? 
It's pretty wild. Um, yeah, so this topic is really something I stumbled on when I was a graduate student. And I was, you know, I'd worked at uh, Duke for a few years, and I'd tried all the different classics things, and I, you know, I'd tried a bit of this, a bit of that. And just by coincidence, I went to work for one of the professors there as a research assistant, and he was a paparologist. And I knew nothing about the field, and I uh, got to work with the Duke collection of papyri and uh, got to know a lot of paparological publications. And I really realized I, I enjoyed working in this field. And um, it just so happened that one summer, uh, on the verge, uh, pretty much before I was about to start writing my dissertation, I uh, was invited by an older student who was about to graduate to co-edit a couple of papyri from the Duke collection. And so we went through them. We spent several weeks deciphering them and uh, figuring out what they said. And a number of the papyri we worked on uh, concerned uh, some activities of police officers, what we were eventually going to call police officers, because that's, that was not really a common term for them at the time. Um, but it concerned a, a number of activities of the police in a couple of villages in this region of Egypt, and the police had been they'd been called into town to you know attend to uh, a, a report of robbery, and they had apparently had gone in, and there had been reports that the police had tied up a couple of civilians, had locked up some houses, and had actually made off with some of the stuff from the houses, including, if I recall correctly, uh, two pillows and a pickled goose, uh, which <laughs> yeah, which we see uh, at the end of one of the papyri we had worked on. And so we went well, through these, and it took a few months, and by the end of the summer, we had, we had some additions, and we sent them off. Um, and I didn't really think too much more about it, aside from the fact that it was fun and I enjoyed it. But this older student who went on to, uh, to graduate and became uh, my dissertation advisor at Duke, Josh Sosen, he, um, he pointed out to me that, you know, he had never read anything before about police in Egypt, in these papyri, in the, in the Ptolemaic period in particular. And he wondered whether or not there might not be a dissertation topic in there. And that really is what got the ball rolling. And I started digging in. And sure enough, uh, gosh, for the last something like 15 years of my life, I've been sort of tied up working with these police. And uh, that was my dissertation. And uh, that was the book that I just finished. Well, you know, one of the interesting things that uh, comes to mind here is that you're a professor of classics, and uh, your background, as we discussed earlier, is uh, basically in Greece and Rome. Yeah. And um, your introduction to Egypt, obviously, would naturally have been with the Ptolemaic period and a little bit before that. I think one of the things that uh, I th that the listenership would be very interested in is how we are able, after all this time, to reconstruct these types of records in such great detail when only about 10 or 15 years ago, the best we could do with uh, both cuneiform writing and, and hieroglyphic writing was these long, crazy inventories of storehouses and warehouses where wheat and agricultural products were stored. Now, all of a sudden, we have made this jump into much more detailed and probably much more interesting types of scenarios such as the police and how they work. How do we how did we get there in terms of your understanding of the piperology and the advances made in the field? So um, the one thing I would say here is that, you know, it has to do a lot with just Egypt itself. It's such a unique place and uh, for the field of paparology it's unique for a variety of reasons. Maybe uh, not more so for the fact that it's so dry there that certain kinds of material survives in Egypt that doesn't survive in other places. And, of course, what I'm talking about here is papyri, these ancient pieces of paper that were created in Egypt and, in fact, would have been shipped out of Egypt in the ancient world and used all throughout the Mediterranean basin and in the Middle East uh, as daily writing material. 
Um, the Greeks would have done it, the Mesopotamians, the Romans, all of these people used papyrus paper uh, for everyday life. And they did things like the, the records you're talking about a second ago, these long agricultural lists. We find these in Egypt. One assumes that you would have made similar lists in other civilizations. The important thing for me and other people who work with papyri is that we only have these things surviving in Egypt uh, because of the particular climate. Um, and so basically over the last hundred years or so, the field of papyrology has arisen. Uh, it Basically, it grew up around 1900 or so when uh, a number of archaeologists began to excavate Greco-Roman towns in Egypt and discovered that as they excavated, they found these uh, large reserves of papyrus paper, either that had been discarded in antiquity and in many cases had been buried in the sand uh, out behind homes and buildings and had stayed in the sand for thousands of years until excavated. And they also found these papyri as well within homes and buildings. They might be tucked away under a staircase. They might be, uh, I don't know, locked up in a box someplace. We often find them in mummies. Um, we, we discover that uh, papyrus was often used in the mummification process, not only for humans, but also for animals uh, in Egypt. So when an archaeologist excavates a necropolis, they might find a bunch of animal mummies, which were in part or in toto um, wrapped or stuffed with papyrus. Because of this, uh, there's a really there's a huge wealth of material, um, of documentation for life in uh, Greco-Roman Egypt. Um, and essentially, this is the 4th century B.C. and later, up to about the 7th century A.D., uh, when the Romans finally, Roman rule finally comes to an end in, uh, in Egypt. And throughout that roughly 1,000-year period, the people living there produced a ton of documentation on this paper. And it really does tell us uh, about the intricacies of everyday life in a way that no other, uh, so, uh, no, no other writing medium does from anywhere in the ancient world. So, uh, as far as the papyrology is concerned, I'm fascinated by that because uh, this tradition, obviously, it's long-standing. Mm-hmm. But at what point and what was the impetus for really getting into the papyrus records, and how developmentally do we actually see a change, or do we get sort of a series of standard types of documentation that uh, that are recorded in the papyrus through time? Do we see a change in the types of things that are being recorded on the papyrus, and, and how widely distributed are papyrus records across, let's call it, the cradle of civilization in the Mediterranean basin? Yeah, so we certainly do find the occasional papyrus outside of Egypt. Of course, if you've heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls, you know those are papyri, those were found outside of Egypt. Um, right. there's, there's a handful, you know, the Herculaneum papyri from uh, the Roman city of Herculaneum that were discovered after um, the excavation there, and of course those were preserved because of the eruption of Vesuvius. Um, there's a Derveni papyrus in Greece that was preserved in a cave uh, in northern Greece. So you find occasionally outside of Egypt uh, examples of papyri. But again, it's, it, Egypt is main, the main place where they survive. The climate's the main thing. The other thing I would point to is, I think, um, Greek influence. Uh, and this is connected to the arrival of the Greeks in Egypt in the 4th century BC. Um, I'll just do a, a quick uh, history revision here, uh, or uh, a review for you. Um, I was going to say that. That's. I think we need to know a little bit about the Ptolemies, et cetera, et cetera. You do, you do. I mean, it's still Egypt, and in many ways, the Egypt in the 4th century BC and later still looks like the Egypt that your listeners may be familiar with from millennia before, uh, yes. but it's got kind of a Greek veneer over it. 
In uh, the second half of the, the 4th century BC, as you may or may not know, uh, a guy named Alexander the Great uh, from Macedon sets out to conquer the world, um, and he ends up doing much of that. He conquers much of the known world over the course of some 10, 15 years. In 330 BC, he heads into Egypt and quickly takes over control of Egypt from uh, the Persians, who had been governing Egypt at that time. And... Um, Within seven years, Alexander is dead, and uh, what happens after that is that his generals end up uh, waging a number of wars for control of his empire, which is ultimately divided up among uh, three or four of the chief guys. And a man named Ptolemy, one of his generals, ends up inheriting Egypt as essentially his fiefdom. Ptolemy sets up a dynasty in Egypt, and it really starts around 323 B.C., and uh, there's a line of Ptolemaic kings, which extends for about 300 years down to 30 B.C., when the Romans come in and take over. Um, over that first 300-year period, the Greeks who move in, and we have a lot of Greeks immigrating to Egypt uh, once uh, the Ptolemies take over, the Greeks who move in set up a really intense bureaucracy and it's a bureaucracy that loves generating paperwork, that loves generating documents, and many of them are these very standard, basic types of documents that we see repeated over and over again. And um, incidentally, these documents, since they're written primarily by Greeks, tend primarily to be in Greek. And um, that's the sort of the tradition that they establish in the late 4th century BC. And over the next roughly 1,000 years, uh, Greek ends up being the language primarily used for government and also to a large part for business, even though Greeks and then later Romans represent a fairly small portion of the population uh, in Egypt, which is still overwhelmingly uh, native Egyptian. So I think that goes a long way towards explaining why it is that we have so many documents and why so many of them are, uh, I think, formulaic. They're connected to the government, and there's only a certain number of ways that government officials uh, communicate with themselves and with uh, the population. So how did the Greeks uh, uniquely get into this How do, in, in terms of the papyrology and in terms of the own, shall we call it, the stamp that the Greeks themselves bring in, because obviously papyrus uh, was being used in Egypt for many, many uh, centuries before that. Um, how do, what is the unique element of the Ptolemies and the Greeks that uh, brings them to uh, use the papyrus, I won't say in a different way, but in a unique way? Was it, was it like more of a distribution where it was the were the papyrus records more widely circulated? Did more people have access to them, et cetera? So that, that's kind of a hard question to answer, and this is, uh, this is something that people ask me in one way, or shape, or form, or another. And the, the difficult part about it is, you know, we look at the evidence for papyri, and we find overwhelmingly that it's in Egypt. Um, but it's clear, if not from finds, then from records and other kinds of records in, uh, in Greco-Roman history, that other civilizations like the Greeks and the Romans used papyri in Greece and Rome. So when you look at the papyri from Egypt, and it's, you know, it's all very Greek, and it's, it's got these various different kinds of formats. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, you have to wonder whether or not the Ptolemies were inheriting something from Egypt when they came, or in fact, these documents that they produce over the course of their rule were in fact very similar to the kind of stuff that would have been produced back in Macedon or back in Greece. And right. We simply don't know because it hasn't survived. I see. Uh, we'll be back with our discussion uh, with uh, Dr. John Bauschatz of the University in Arizona after these words. Stay tuned. 
stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast all the time the number one internet talk station where your opinion counts voiceamerica.com have you had a chance to check out voice america's online magazine and blog press pass if you love our hosts and shows check out articles that give an even deeper perspective plus topics about health and fitness movie reviews philosophy business tips and tactics spirituality positive thought current events and even more about your favorite host it's just a click away at vapresspass.com that's vapresspass.com va press pass by voice america all access all the time for 27 years, KidStar has empowered thousands of kids across the country. And now we have the opportunity to empower children around the world. KidStar is announcing a new radio show called Voyage Earth. Voyage Earth will empower kids from across the world. KidStar has created a Kickstarter campaign just for this new undertaking. By pledging to Kickstarter, you pledge for a future of empowered people to come. My name is Rinsley from Indy on Voice America Kids. I want to thank you for being a backer of our Kickstarter, Voyage Earth. KidStar, we empower kids. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. Get the news on our shows and other happenings by following us on Twitter. Find us at VoiceAmericaTRN or Twitter.com forward slash VoiceAmericaTRN. You're listening to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to indianajonesmythreality at gmail.com. Now, back to the program. We're back. This is Joe Schuldenrein with uh, Dr. John Bauschatz, who is a pepperologist and a classic scholar uh, at the University of Arizona. We've been talking up to this point uh, about papyrus and the use of papyrus for record keeping and ultimately for documentation on developments in Ptolemaic Egypt. I think uh, before we actually get into the question uh, that is essential to to this uh, presentation, and that is, of course, the question of law enforcement in Ptolemaic Egypt. I think one of the topics that uh, most of us, and and especially uh, folks in the lay community who are very interested and always have been in ancient Egypt, one of the things they don't know is this convergence between the Greeks and the Egyptians, and how that convergence worked as the Greeks sort of uh, work their way into Egypt and certainly put their signature on the dynamics of the social and political and economic orders in that country. Uh, John, why don't you talk a little bit about that? How did the Greek migrations or the Greek domin- the, the Greek influx into Egypt change society and generally, uh, in a sense, uh, change the course of history? 
Yeah, well, that's uh, I mean, that's a good question. And that's, in fact, something that's been, uh, I think, pretty hotly debated over the last maybe 50 years. Um, obviously, the Greeks aren't going to come in and say, all right, let's equate ourselves with the Egyptians. Let's live at the bottom of the, you know, the social pyramid now that they had a Greek king of the country. And perhaps unsurprisingly, you find in the first several decades of Ptolemaic rule that Greeks are infiltrating the government, and they're the ones who are basically in control of uh, the way uh, government works. So basic sketch here, you've got the king at the head of the country, and the king is uh, essentially a Greek king, but he fits pretty um, seamlessly into sort of the Egyptian model of the pharaoh. So he's still up there as uh, a pharaoh for the Egyptians, but again, the Greeks see him as basically chief executive. Egypt is um, divided up into a variety of provinces, which the Greeks call gnomes. Each gnome has effectively a governor, a guy called a strategos, which literally means general. Um, that's a Greek in the, at the head of each gnome. And then within each gnome, there's a number of uh, lower-level officials, all of whom basically are Greeks. And these are officials in a variety of different spheres, the military, the economy, the civil sphere, uh, the notariate, essentially the, the scribal offices. Most of these are Greeks, but you start to find, uh, even in the earliest times, at the very bottom of the government scale, uh, there are, in fact, Egyptian officials. We have a number of uh, Egyptian officials who worked as sort of agricultural supervisors in towns. Uh, we find that local scribes in small towns would have been Egyptians. Um, and uh, as a matter of fact, when we, if we talk about police, and I assume we will, we find that a lot of these sort of beat cops, the guys who would have been on the street doing the sort of nitty-gritty police work, were Egyptians. Um, right. But once you go another, a level or two up the scale, it's pretty much an entirely Greek uh, administration. So what you're saying is it effectively is a, uh, for lack of a better word, a colonial, colonialist model where the, uh, the dominating force sort of comes in and basically cedes uh, lower level controls on the local level to, to the local people. And then the bureaucracy and the hierarchy develops that way. And it, it's something that obviously a lot of us who are students of history, and you clearly are a major scholar in history, this is a pattern that we know. And it probably emerged from there rather than the other way around. Yeah, no, and I think you're probably right. Um, and, and certainly in those first several decades, that's what it is. Now, it, it, would, it wouldn't be fair to say that it stays that way throughout the entire 300 years of the Ptolemies unchanged, but you're right. Um, it basically, the Greeks come in, they inherit the government basically from the Persians, whom Alexander unseated, and the Persians had done much the same thing. They had effectively ruled uh, from a distance, imposing go uh, Persian governors over the different provinces, and again, the Egyptians were forced to sort of interact with them. Uh, it's essentially the same. It changes uh, as the years go by, but yeah, it's uh, basically a colonialist system. And was the transition uh, evolutionary or revolutionary in your in your eyes? Yeah, so this is another thing that people have uh, debates about. If you read the uh, the Greek and Roman historians of Alexander, uh, for the most part, they agree that Egypt welcomed Alexander and they were happy to get rid of him because they had, excuse me, they were happy to get rid of the Persians uh, because evidently the Persians were uh, not very good governors. That's what the historical tradition says about uh, Egypt under the Persians 
and Alexander. When you turn around and you look at some of the more documentary evidence, though, in the Persian period and the early Ptolemaic period, you find that there really wasn't necessarily that much of a change on the ground. Um, our documents from the Persian period suggest that there was a coexistence uh, between Persians and Egyptians, and that the Egyptians adapted to life under Persian rule, and that there wasn't any sort of really widespread distaste for the Persians, which is hinted at at Greek sources like the historian Herodotus, who makes it sound like um, you know the 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 Persians were never particularly welcome uh, in Egypt. Um, but yeah, so it looks like in those first years, there was a bit of sort of getting to know each other. And uh, you find that that transitional period wasn't necessarily as smooth as it could have been. Um, and this is maybe sort of where we might get into a bit, of, uh, a bit about police. Um, there are some documents early in that period, uh, which are petitions. And these petitions are essentially letters written by people to various government officials asking for some sort of uh, redress, some sort of help in regards to a problem they're having. And we find that a number of these documents from the earliest uh, papyri we have, this would probably be about the late 3rd century B.C., so like the 230s or the 220s B.C., um, a number of these papyri uh, concern tension between Greeks and Egyptians. And so uh -huh. you might actually, um, I mean, I could cite a couple of examples for you. There's one that's probably one of the most famous ones, one of the ones I like to, to cite the most. We have a document from a guy, not a Greek man, who mm -hmm. had been, uh, he's living in Egypt, and he was on a business trip. Um, I want to say his name is Heraclides. I'm not remembering off the top of my head, but it doesn't matter. He's traveling in one of the Egyptian gnomes, and he travels from his hometown to a different town. And according to him, in the letter he wrote to his provincial governor, uh, which was originally intended to go to the king, he tells us that as he was passing through this village, he was, without provocation, attacked by a woman in the village who came up to him and started to beat him and then ripped his cloak and only returned to her house after a bunch of onlookers took her to task and said, you've got to stop doing this, you're, you're being crazy. She goes back to her house and uh, the guy is about to go about his business when all of a sudden she opens the upper story of her house and dumps her chamber pot on his head. And it's wild. It's unbelievable. And so the guy, the Greek man, writes this letter complaining about this abuse, and he underlines the fact that he is a Greek man and that the woman who did this, not only is she a woman, which is bad enough, but she's right. an Egyptian woman who did this, and this is extremely insulting behavior. He refers to it as hubris, which, if you know your Greek and you know your uh, Greek legal terminology, essentially means it's willful wrongdoing and insult with intent to humiliate. Um, <laughs> and so he points this out in the letter, not only to say, did she mistreat me, but she did it in a really hateful way, and it was, seems to have been racially or ethnically motivated. Um, so this suggests that there was not always super peaceful coexistence between these different populations uh, in Egypt. So where it's going, it seems to be, is that all of a sudden civil disputes become an issue that uh, sort of uh, bring various segments, I assume, to some degree broken out by ethnic lines. And is that the background to the policing and to the mentality and to the enforcement of civil dispute laws? Is that how it worked? Is that it, how it, it evolved? It kind of is. And the, what you mentioned a second ago about um, divisions uh, along ethnic lines, I should point out that um, there's uh, a court system uh, in Egypt in the 3rd century B.C. and later. Uh, we have evidence in the, in the papyri. 
Um, and for civil disputes in Egypt, there was a tripartite court system under the Ptolemies. There's a series of courts that are specifically for Greeks versus Greeks. They imply Greek law. Uh, most likely law that would have been imported from a place like Athens, which uh, has a pretty well-attested legal code. Um, there were courts that were specifically for Egyptians against Egyptians. And these courts were allowed to have Egyptian judges and draw on Egyptian precedent for the handling of disputes. They even went so far as to create courts that were for Egyptians and Greeks, where there was a dispute between uh, you know, a, mixed, uh, a mixed, basically, clientele. And in those courts, um, you could see that there could be problems. There would be problems not only of necessarily of communication, but also problems when it came to interpretation of law. Uh, the Greeks were certainly big on codification, and they could draw on legal precedents from a lot of different Greek city-states. The Egyptians, as far as we know, there's no sort of ever was any sort of codified Egyptian law, um, but there certainly was precedent for things. Um, and so you could see that in a court like that, where you've got litigants of different ethnicities with different traditions, there might be uh, problems with justice. So right from the, the outset, I think the Ptolemies addressed the issue of different populations needing different kinds of justice, and they, uh, and they handled it in large part, at least with civil disputes, uh, with this sort of multifaceted court system. The intriguing thing about that, of course, is uh, one can understand um, internally that Egyptians judging Egyptians and Greeks ju judging Greeks is certainly um, one of the, the, the most logical way to go, especially at that point in time and in that place. The question is what happens, as you talked about earlier, when Greeks and, and Egyptians come into conflict, then I would assume there are status and racial issues that come up. And since the Greeks basically held the upper hand, uh, that would make it uh, make them, I assume, the enforcers. Yes, and this is um, again, this is something we do see hinted at in papyri uh, that there is this sort of I don't want to say racial bias, but I, I think in, in in some ways it's there. Um, if the Greeks are pulling all the strings, then the Greeks have a real or at least a perceived advantage at law. And I think this, this comes up, comes into play in particular when we're dealing uh, not only with civil cases, but also with criminal cases. Um, we have this civil court system to deal with civil disputes. When it comes to things like crimes, uh, for the most part, these issues were not, they did not play out in courtrooms. It looks to have been the case that when there were reported crimes, we would have a number of things like we do today. We'd have investigations. We would have witness testimony. We would have uh, police might go to a crime scene to investigate and look at, uh, examine evidence, uh, make a report perhaps. Um, and then there would be some sort of a trial at the end, uh, provided that there was not some sort of a mediation in advance to settle the issue uh, less formally. But the trial that you have for a criminal case would more likely be smaller, and it would be sort of an ad hoc thing arranged before some kind of police official. And even in those situations, the evidence, which is admittedly not super great, but nevertheless there's some, the evidence suggests that Egyptians were quite clear that they were at a disadvantage. And, um, you know, we see clear evidence that they didn't show up for trial sometimes. Um, and there's a couple of ways to interpret this. If there's a trial between, uh, before an official between an Egyptian and a Greek, the Greek mm -hmm. shows up and ends up winning because the Egyptian doesn't show up. Well, either the Egyptian doesn't show up because the Egyptian says, gosh, I'm guilty, what's the point of showing up? Or the Egyptian says, gosh, I'm not going to get a fair trial, what's the point of showing up? They're going to say I'm guilty anyway. 
Um, so we're sort of left scratching our heads, but it looks as though, uh, unless the Egyptians were always the ones committing the crimes against the Greeks and not vice versa, it looks like the Egyptians perceived that there was a bias sometimes and that they were uh, you know, sort of working with a stacked deck in many of these situations. It seems kind of logical, wouldn't it? I mean, um, they're the, uh, the, the conquered component of the society, whereas the Greeks clearly were on top of this hegemonic system. And it would seem that the deck would be stacked against them. Do you have any good evidence for that happening, or is it just at this point not? Is the evidence just a bit too fragmentary to uh, not have sufficient information to prove a hypothesis on yeah. that? It's, I mean, that's another good question. Like, we can look, we have thousands of papyri that are, that are documentary, that deal with uh, text from everyday life. Thousands of papyri over about roughly a thousand years, which makes Greco-Roman probably the best understood ancient civilization, bar none. But even that thousands of documents is a tiny fraction of what we originally had. So... Compared with evidence from other civilizations, we have a massive amount, but when you really sit down and think about it, we only have a fraction, and it's really hard to make, uh, make good generalizations. That said, um, it does look like there was this perception that, yes, uh, there was inherent bias. And, I mean, I'll, I'll bring up another class of documents. Maybe this will shed some more light on the issue. We know a certain amount about prison under the Ptolemies and in, in Greco-Roman Egypt, uh, in general. And we know about prison not necessarily because of actual archaeology and the excavation of prison buildings, but because there's lots of references to prisons in documents, and we have a number of letters written from prisoners to the outside world. And we find in these letters from prisoners, uh, which are overwhelmingly written by Egyptians uh, to other Egyptians, the prisoners always pretty much uniformly detail how miserable they are, how they are being deprived of the necessities of life. They often uh, say that they're near death, they need help, or they're going to perish. Um, but one thing they pretty much also always do as well is they illustrate the fact that they have been wrongly imprisoned or that the charges against them were a lie or that someone is out to get them or, you know, someone they were, they were arrested because of a debt, but they actually paid their debt. So, again, you have to scratch your head. Is this a letter from a prisoner who is desperate to get out and is going to lie and say whatever he possibly can to get out? Or does this give evidence that, in fact, the deck was, again, stacked against primarily Egyptians and, uh, the Greeks with whom they dealt knew that they could get away with bending the rules a little bit, and the Egyptians would be the ones uh, who would have to suffer. And we'll be back with our discussion on papyrology and uh, John Bauschatz's most recent book called Law and Enforcement in Ptolemaic Egypt after these words. Stay tuned. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. What sets apart VoiceAmerica.tv from the other video content providers on the Internet? 
choice and flexibility means that you can host your video content live or on demand on the main voiceamerica.tv channels through your own branded media player or your own private TV channel. We support multiple media formats, so all of your video content can be in one place. We offer a number of advertising and video packages. For more information, visit voiceamerica.tv. If you think you've seen online TV like this before, let us surprise you. Follow the Voice America Talk Radio Network on Twitter. We're at Voice America TRN. You'll get the latest fix on what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and general happenings that you should know about at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Now you don't have to miss anything when you're away from your home or office. Just go to twitter.com forward slash Voice America TRN or follow along with us at Voice America TRN, the Voice America Talk Radio Network. We're on the cutting edge of social media. Can you keep up? Take us on the go. It's even easier now. The Voice America Talk Radio Network has launched our mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market to download the app powered by Aircast. It's free and no registration is necessary. In minutes, you could be enjoying your favorite Voice America Talk Radio host, no matter where you are, in the car, out and about, while traveling, or anytime you can't be close to your computer. Catch up on the archives you've missed or discover new shows on the spot. Search Voice America at your favorite app store. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain inspired really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to indianajonesmythreality at gmail.com. Now, back to the program. We are back with... uh Dr. John, ba- uh, Dr. John Bauschatz, and we are discussing a very intriguing volume that he has just published on law and enforcement in Ptolemaic Egypt. And during the break, John and I were talking about how essentially this accounting of the of police behavior and police activity and prisons and uh, civil disobedience and civil disputes in, in Ptolemaic Egypt is probably the very oldest accounting that we have uh, of the emergence of police work and the emergence of a system for trying to legislate and enforce rules and laws in an ancient society that uh, probably gave way to police patterns and police enforcement uh, to the present day. John, uh, what are your thoughts on that, and how would you be uh, able to essentially chronicle the developments 
in uh, Ptolemaic Egypt with respect to policing and, and their ramifications to how police work and, and the prison systems have evolved in, contempor- in the contemporary world. So, yeah, that's kind of a complicated question, but I think I can, uh, I can uh, make a few stabs at it. Um, so one thing, uh, we certainly do have some evidence, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, from before the Ptolemaic period uh, in Mesopotamia and in, uh, in Egypt itself for the operation of prisons and um, for the operation of law and order and a little bit about policing as well. But it's certainly much, much, much sparser um, than what we have once we start getting papyri. And the papyri really, like as you said, uh, the world that opens up when you sit down and you examine these things is quite unlike anything we see from any other ancient civilization. And, you know, uh, when we look forward, we don't find similar documentation in the civilizations of Greece or Rome at all um, that is sort of on a par with what we find in the Ptolemaic papyri and in the, in the Roman papyri that come after uh, in Egypt. Why is um, that? Why is that? Well, again, I think it. I think it has to do with the fact that police, for the most part, are uh, they are a sort of a street level small town experience, and right. the, the evidence we have from classical antiquity and other ancient civilizations tends to be top down. It tends to be from the head of the government, or it tends to be from um, large scale archaeology, which doesn't necessarily preserve these kinds of interactions and these kinds of officials, or in the in the case of I think Greece and Rome. Our written evidence is primarily ancient literature, which has survived over millennia thanks to uh, medieval manuscripts in Greek and Latin. And the authors who wrote that stuff, there's no evidence at all that they really knew anything about police or cared about police, which could suggest a couple of things, either that no such thing ever existed in the Greco-Roman world, or, and I think this is more likely, that policing in places like Greece and Rome and throughout Europe and North Africa, um, would have been something that would have been handled on a small-scale, local level, and there certainly would have been officials, and there would have been records. But again, uh, thanks to primarily climate, um, we don't get those records. And the people who wrote literature, uh, the upper class, that very, very small 1% of society that could have written and read... um, they weren't concerned with what, you know, some peasant out in the countryside, uh, right. the complaint he was lodging about the guy next door who had stolen his donkey. Um, but that's exactly the kind of stuff we see on these papyri uh, from Egypt. And so uh, so it's an interesting situation. I mean, obviously, um, you're sort of looking at the evolution of policing from uh, from the ground up in a way because that's where you get that's where you get the greatest detail. How much detail do we get in a lot of these records? I mean, how thoroughly um, is the documentation, and what do we really know about how the police behaved? So, I mean, we know all sorts of things. Um, my starting point when I looked into sort of who these officials were and what they did was uh, essentially a, a long, a long distance and a long time removed. I, I sort of looked at. Um, England, uh, England in the 18th, 19th, 20th centuries, uh, primarily 18th and 19th. Uh, many people over the years have, have cited 18th and 19th century England as the place where um, we start getting the development of real uh, professional police forces. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, a number of scholars have looked at this and identified basic duties performed by the police and say, you know, provided that you perform these basic duties, you can call a group of officials a police uh, police network, a police uh, corps. And these duties are effectively arrest, um, detention, uh, investigation, and prosecution 
I guess detention doesn't really necessarily, it's sort of tied in with arrest, but if you can arrest, sure. if you can um, investigate, and if you can prosecute uh, and get justice, that's effectively what a police force does. And the conventional wisdom before, um, I guess before I, I, I wrote the book, um, was that we don't really get the emergence of this anywhere in the world until really the 19th century in uh, in England. But in fact, if you look at that same model and you apply it to uh, what the police do in Egypt, they certainly do this. Uh, they do all of those things. Um, so not only do the police in Egypt go out and make arrests when there are reports of rule-breaking, or in fact when they see rule-breaking happen uh, first person, they also detain people. Uh, we mentioned prisons a while ago. Prisons could be used as temporary holding cells, as well as long-term holding cells for people awaiting trial or punishment or um, basically debtors who were put in prison and not allowed to leave until their debt was paid. So we see them detaining people in prisons and in other official places. Uh, we see them doing investigations. And the, the amount of stuff that police officials would have done, even back in the 3rd century B.C., was rather staggering. We know that various police officials would go to crime scenes and investigate damage to property, to people, to animals. Uh, they would interview witnesses and take down witness testimony, or they would arrange for witnesses to appear at a trial later on. Um, they would um, arrange for that trial itself uh, with uh, some sort of upper-level official who would sit in effectively as a mediator to listen to the two sides. Um, they would document everything they did. We have a number of reports from police that document visits to crime scenes, inspections, follow-up inspections, uh, visits to people's houses to check and see whether someone who was a suspect had disappeared or to find out where they had gone. Um, and uh, you know, they, they seem to be very, very up on the idea of um, making sure everybody knew they were doing as much as they could. Um, and a lot of our documentation ends, a lot of these reports end with sentences along the lines of, I am reporting to this so that you may know, um, in sort of a way they're, they're sort of passing a buck onto a superior, but basically saying, look at me, I'm doing my job, and I'm, you know, dotting my I's and crossing my T's, um, and I want to make sure you have the official record. So they're doing all sorts of things uh, for investigation. As I mentioned before, um, we could also have trials before officials. These tended to be less... Um, I don't know, less large scale than the civil uh, court trials that we could also have. But again, at these criminal trials, uh, you would expect that the prosecution would be there, the defense would be there, witnesses might be there, or their testimony would appear. You might bring in uh, an example of some sort of damaged property as well. And then there would be either an official or officials who would serve as uh, judge, jury, and I don't want to say executioner because it doesn't look like there was uh, a death penalty, at least from the, the documents we have. But they would decide what the sentence uh, would be. And often these same people who were acting as judge were police officials who might also the next day go out and uh, patrol the streets or investigate a crime. So the separation of powers that we're used to in this country uh, don't seem to have applied. It seems like they could have served as uh, as cook and bottle washer <laughs> at yeah. the same time. Oh, yes. And, and you know, it's and since you bring that up, um, police do a lot more than just um, the traditional police activities that we associate with police today. These officials... Um, and the, the primary uh, official who was a policeman in, in Ptolemaic Egypt is a guy named, called a Fulakites. Um, Fulakites, this is a Greek word. Uh, it has the basic root phulak in it, which means a guard. Uh, mm -hmm. But it's not quite a guard. It, it clearly designates someone who has sort of a protective power. Uh, but they do all of these policing activities, and very clearly, um, 
the police in Egypt were not only sort of the beat cops who patrolled uh, a locality and dealt with law enforcement. They were also closely tied to the central government, and they were important cogs in sort of the revenue-producing and guarding machine. One thing that police always did, and it was one of the most, most important duties they had, they ran the annual harvesting of crops. Um, and so they would provide not only security but protection in Egyptian villages as uh, grain and other crops were brought in every year uh, to be sent off to the government uh, when the when the people would pay their taxes. Police would supervise the sort of the bagging and the loading of grain, the shipment of grain. They'd watch over. Um, threshing floors. They'd watch over granaries. Uh, they were also involved in the collection of debts. If people who had not, people who had not paid their grain, uh, police would go to their houses. And we would have lots of letters from people who had police visitors who didn't treat them so well. Uh, lots of complaints of police brutality in the collection of outstanding debts. Um, so these guys were not just police. They were also uh, occasionally heavy-handed government muscle that was used to make sure uh, that the grain kept rolling into uh, the king's coffers. And yet in many ways it sounds very much like what we are seeing today. I mean, it seems like uh, a large percentage of the cases that are dealt with by the police pretty mundane, and yet there are the occasional examples of excess force and excess domination that, uh, that we we're experiencing uh, to this day. It seems very similar. It, I mean, it certainly is. And, you know, um, you certainly get that pr uh, impression after wading through hundreds of uh, documents uh, from Egypt. Of course, one of, the, one of the other problems I mentioned a while ago that, you know, we have uh, uneven data. Uh, we only have a fraction of the papyri that would have been produced. Again, um, there are certain pockets over the course of Ptolemaic history where we have more or less. We have a fair amount of documentation from the late 3rd century BC and then from the middle of the 2nd century BC and the late 1st century BC. But there are times when we have very few documents for whatever reason. And there are certain parts of Egypt where we have lots of evidence and certain parts where we have less. Um, and this can be for a variety of reasons. One thing in particular I'd point out, uh, the capital city in um, Ptolemaic Egypt, Alexandria, one of the great cities of the Mediterranean, um, clearly a bustling metropolis. We know a lot about it from literary sources and from later Roman sources. But as it happens, we have very few papyri from Alexandria, which is a shame because we know very little about how the local government in Alexandria worked and we actually know virtually nothing about how policing was handled in that Greek city. Uh, but uh, we know a lot about how policing was handled from small, primarily Egyptian settlements in Egypt, and that's where our papyri uh, come from. Um, the last thing I would add there, the reason for this, uh, the reason we don't have documentation in Alexandria, certainly there would have been lots of papyri used there, but again, it's right on the Mediterranean, and the climate there is, of course, much more humid, and papyri simply doesn't survive uh, from that, that area. The great library notwithstanding, right? Well, that doesn't survive either. A lot of things don't survive uh, for different reasons. Uh, right, because and, uh, that's that's in the Deltaic region, and there's a lot of moisture, and there's a lot of uh, humidity. Yeah. Uh, I guess one of the interesting points as, as we, we uh, start to approach the end of the presentation and the interview here, one of the interesting things that you you documented here was that we have this really, uh, I would say, relatively rich documentation of police activity um, in the Greek period, um, 
and then all of a sudden there's this huge gap, as you had indicated, that uh, extends all the way to 17th and 18th century England, where we have obviously pretty well-documented accounts and records of how prisons, policing, and the judicial systems work together. What happens in the middle? We don't have much, huh? It's, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to say. It, there's always these tantalizing glimpses uh, that there is something going on in these civilizations across space and time uh, between Egypt and the present day. But, you know, we have nothing like the body of evidence we do from Egypt to tell us clearly who was doing what uh, over, you know, a course of a thousand years. We know, I mean, if you look at other civilizations, um, ancient civilizations, like, for example, Athens, uh, the city of Athens and the city sure. of Rome, mm-hmm. uh, you know that, that law enforcement worked in one way or the other in these places. If you look at classical Athens, we know from a variety of sources uh, that there were sort of makeshift police forces there, but none of them uh, with the sophistication of a modern police force or even of the one that we see in Ptolemaic Egypt. We knew that uh, we know that there were certain um, bodies of public slaves that would be used as sort of crowd control from time to time in Athens. We know that uh, certain magistrates had the power to use these guys to make an arrest or to break up any sort of civil unrest. Um, but these public slaves, uh, essentially slaves owned by the government, were not autonomous, and they were slaves. They didn't have decision-making powers. They couldn't investigate. They were muscles. <clears throat> right. so we, know, we know that that was there. Um, and we know that in Rome, uh, the, the first Roman Emperor Augustus made a lot of reforms in Rome, and we know that he instituted uh, this sort of pseudo-military contingent called the, the Praetorian Guard, uh, which is effectively a small military corps in the city of Rome that served not only as a bodyguard for the emperor, but also had a number of uh, semi-police duties. Again, though, this is not an autonomous body that was able to operate on its own and do what typical police today do. Uh, comes somewhat close, but it's not quite there. And so we sort of wonder what else was there, and our, our evidence is not particularly good uh, from, from Athens, from Rome, and from other civilizations. And yet the analogies are very striking to what's going on today. Mm. And it, it, it certainly seems, you know, on the surface that uh, the protocols that were set up in Ptolemaic Egypt were effectively, with major, with some modification, being followed today. Hey, you know, in many ways, I'd, I'd love to say that that's where it all started, and you know, there's a there's a straight beeline between you know the Heracleopolite gnome in the second century BC and I don't know, you know, modern day Tucson, Arizona. I suspect right. it's, it's probably not that straight, but uh, there may be more of a connection than uh, people have admitted over the years. It may be a jagged line, but it's a line nevertheless. <laughs> there you go. And on that note, uh, we're going to have to bring this program to an end. I want to extend my thanks to our guest, Dr. John Bauschatz, and I wish you all success in the world with this volume, which I'm sure is going to be a a nice eye-opener to a lot of people who are interested in uh, these types of things, which I think are very important and provide very critical lessons to us going forward, especially in light of what's going on in uh, policing, uh, in, not just in this country, but all over the world. Thank you very much, John. Hey, thanks for having me. I enjoyed it. And we'll see you all next week. Thanks again for tuning in to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Please join us for another unique journey into the past next Wednesday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. 
In the meantime, think about the past with an eye towards the future and a better tomorrow. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. 